Hear the word of the Lord. Colossians 3 verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has given you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Church, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I trust that you have spiritual purposes for this time together tonight. Each of us is coming out of different days and different schedules. Our hearts are in different conditions. The details of our lives are are varied. But Father, you are able and capable to minister to each one of us through the very same words in the exact way that we need. So would you do that tonight? Not that any man would be puffed up or seem to be capable, but that your people would get the help that they need, that we need, and that your son would get all the glory that he deserves. I pray that from the words that are considered tonight, that there would be tens of thousands of people that are affected by compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forgiveness that flows out of the lives of the saints in this room tonight. I ask that with faith, not because I am worthy, but because you are good. We'll entrust these things to you in your name. Amen. Colossians 3. Well, if you're not a sports fan, you'll have to bear with me because this is one of my favorite times of, of year. It's the best time to be a sports fan, in my opinion. Four and a half months of college football lie ahead of us. Four and a half months. We've only had one game, one week go past us. And if you're like me, you get to enjoy watching your team fight for mediocrity all season long. Overpaid people, except for the student athletes, right? Uh, fighting for mediocrity. But that's just me. May not be you, right? I wouldn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And then there's pro football, which is decidedly less interesting, especially recently. But that brings five or more months of sports drama, more drama than sports recently, but five months of, of pro football. And then, you know, I love the beginning of this season because for me, one of the things that this reminds me of is all the games are ahead of us, right? All the football, but I also think that also means basketball is coming, right? And that's where, that's where my blood comes from. It's not just football and it's not just basketball, but fall also means baseball playoffs. Don't fall asleep. I hear some snoring, right? Baseball playoffs. Now, I've tried to like baseball. It's fun when you're a kid playing. It's fun to, it's fun to play baseball. But I generally lack the leisure time that is needed to enjoy watching a baseball game, except for playoff baseball, which is, which is coming up. And the major leagues have what is, I suppose, uh, the most storied sports franchise in the history of sports. 
the Yankees, the New York Yankees. Yeah, 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 yeah. We don't have any Yankees fans on here, right? But they have won a staggering 27 world championships. The most in history. And, you know, pretty much any Major League Baseball player, whether they admit it or not, wants to play for the Yankees. One of the ways you know this is because you see players from the Red Sox, their rival, all the time just leave the Red Sox and go play for the Yankees, right? Because they, that's, the, that's the team people want to play for. They, it's got the most history. I mean, they get to play where for the team where Babe Ruth played for, Mickey Mantle and Yogi Berra and Joe DiMaggio, they all played for the Yankees. And they get to play in the middle of the biggest, most bustling metropolitan center in the world, right? And there's big money for Yankees contracts. And I've also been told that Yankees players are far more likely to land big endorsement deals because they live in New York City. And so they make more money. Everybody wants to play for, for the Yankees. But I recently learned an interesting fact about the Yankees. And they are one of the few teams in Major League Baseball that still have an appearance policy. Right? An appearance policy. It states that the players must have their hair cut above the collar of their baseball jersey and that they're not permitted to have beards. Right? And if you've watched postseason baseball in the last couple of years, that's like a big thing because these players get these crazy beards and crazy facial hair. And, and so if you are traded and you get picked up by the Yankees, before you show up, you've got to schedule an appointment with the barber and get cleaned up, right? You have to be, if you're going to be a Yankee, you must be clean shaven and clean cut. Now, suppose I was to get a fresh haircut. And suppose I was to shave this silly excuse of a beard that I still have. Would I be a Yankee? No. Thank you, Haley. <laughs> no, right? It's because it's not what a player takes off that makes him a Yankee, but it's what he puts on. And I'm not just talking about putting off facial hair, but putting on the pinstripes. The pinstripes or would define and distinguish a Yankee. Now, the same is true in many ways for the Christian. We are not to be known only for the things we put off, but what we put on. Not only to be known for people who don't put on sexual morality, but also those who put on humility. I suppose if you were to ask the common person, what they think of when they hear evangelical Christian, you're probably going to get answers that are pretty controversial, right? They'll probably hear something about conservative politics, or maybe you'll hear something, do you remember the old saying, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go with the girls who do? Anybody remember that, remember that saying? It's often how we're known for the things that we're against, but this isn't how Christ said that we should be known by the world. It's not about just what we don't do, but it's about what we do do. It's about what we put on. The scriptures say, by, all of the, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. What? If you have love for one another. And this is the focus of our text tonight. We've already worked through in quite a bit of detail some of the specifics that Paul calls Christians to put off 
there in verses 5 through 11. Behaviors and attitudes, uh, attitudes of the heart, patterns of thinking that we are called to put off because they're not fitting for a Christian who has been raised to a resurrection life. And make no mistake, we are absolutely called to shave off what is earthly. But then in verse 12, Paul is calling us to take note, not just of the negative things we're not supposed to do, but what we are to put on. And we are called, he lists five qualities of Christian character that should adorn our lives. Imagine that you were a manager and you were, let's say you were in the computer, let's say you're in the technology field, and you needed to, you were given the job of hiring somebody for a new position. Let's say it's a computer programmer, right? And let's say that someone comes in for an interview, and you start talking, and the applicant says, hey, and you say, hey, tell me, why do you think you'd be good at this job, right? Programming software. And let's say the applicant says, well, I don't play computer games at work anymore. Uh, or mm, my mom no longer types my papers. I, ty- I can type for myself now. Uh, or, uh, or, or, or I don't smash my computer when I have problems with it. Anybody ever been tempted to do that? It's actually a pretty significant skill, like not smashing your computer when you have a you know, blank screen. But, I mean, but, but imagine the interviewer saying, uh, okay, good, right? But what sort of skills do you have? Like what qualifies you for the position? And I fear that we as Christians are often somewhat like this applicant. We focus so much on what we don't do and the things that we shouldn't do that we neglect at times the responsibilities that we should do. We may be proud of ourselves that we don't get drunk, but we may fail to consider how we're doing with our humility or our patience or kindness. And not only, when we fail to do this, not only does this keep us from seeing how much we still really, really need Jesus, but it means that we're going to be stunted in growth, stunted in our growth in Christ-likeness, which is the goal of the Christian life. Tonight, we're going to look carefully at the qualities that are listed here in verse 12. Last week, we spent the whole time talking about what it means to be God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That we're adopting this identity that we've been given as God's elect children. And now, we're going to look at what I'm calling, a little cheesy perhaps, but the pinstripes of Christian character. Now, before we look at these individually, let me make a few comments about them as a group. The first thing to notice about this, this brief list here is that each of these character traits is very closely related, right? I mean, it, is, it can be kind of tricky to distinguish between humility and meekness, right? Uh, they're, very, they're very closely related. It's hard to imagine someone who is humble but not meek or someone who is kind but not patient, right? And this is very similar to, this, to the details of uh, what we were to put off in verses 5, and, and especially verse 5, right? The difference in sexual morality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness. They're all very closely related, and it's the same sort of thing here. But remember, Paul is using the metaphor of clothing. Take off dirty clothing and put on appropriate clothing. 
And so it seems to make sense that he's referring not to lots of different articles of clothing, but a, a garment, right? A seamless piece of clothing. Um, these are, oh man, this is trouble. These are the overalls, right? Like the one, like you got the, you got the pants, you got the top. If y'all aren't going to laugh at that, these are the rompers, right? Is that what those are? I had to Google that and make sure I wouldn't get myself into trouble. All right. Of the Christian life, it's that one article of clothing where you've got it all, all covered. It's the qualities of Christian character that are all combined. But there are some subtle differences. Okay, so that's one point. A second point to notice is, is as, I, as I started working through some of these characteristics yesterday, one of the things I noticed was that almost all the time, when the Bible talks about compassion, or when the Bible talks about kindness or patience, do you know who the Bible is referring to? Is God. I mean, just again and again, these are qualities of God. And whenever the, whenever the qualities are mentioned to humans, it's always like, hey, be like God, right? God is the one who is described with these, for kindness, for example, I did the I did the work myself. Every sing, every single I think right every single example or instance of this word for kindness in the New Testament. Every time it's used, it's referring to the kindness of God or a call to imitate the kindness of God. Now think about that for a minute. That's because these are not human qualities. These are divine attributes. These are characteristics of God, which means that if we are really going to grow in holiness, and that if we're really going to grow in our Christian character, we must turn our eyes towards the character of God and make him the object of our study and the object of our imitation. You can't really learn how to be patient or truly kind by imitating man, unless that man is imitating God. You must study God, for God alone shows us how to be gentle and patient, and I would argue that God alone gives us the resources to be gentle and patient. Christ shows us how to be humble and how to be meek. If you focus your attention first on verse 10, you remember that we are called, remember remember what's happening here. We are being renewed in knowledge after the image of who? The creator. That's what's happening in the Christian life. God is renewing us. He is making us new. Our new creatureness is to be like our creator, the way we were originally made to be. We're being renewed after his image, and so we should make him the focus of our imitation and our study. And I've found, and we could, we'll talk about this some other time, but I've found that the Bible has teaches uh, that the more we gaze, the more you focus and gaze on the beauty of Christ, and the more that he captivates you, the more you will be transformed into his likeness. That as you see him as he is, the beauty of sin, which is a lie, it fades. And we are transformed, as the Bible says, one degree of glory to the next. So as you focus on God, you become like God. So by way of implication, we must remember, since these qualities are not natural to us, 
that means that we have to be intentional about putting them on. This takes good old-fashioned Christian effort. No one stumbles into godliness. No one naturally becomes patient. Not even Christians. It is not... I I hear people say from time to time, I'm just naturally a patient person. Liar! (laughs) Right? You're just patient with me right now in this moment and want me to think you're patient. I don't think you're patient, right? That's not how we're wired. Because of sin. We must put on the spirit-filled, labor-intensive work of sanctification. This takes effort. Church, you're called, you're given a command to put these qualities on. And it's not going to be an accident. A third point to notice is each of these qualities can only be practiced if you are in relationship with other people. If you are stranded on a desert island by yourself, you cannot obey any of these commands, right? Who are you going to be patient with? Yourself? Listen, I'll tell you what. I am so kind to Nathan. I will tell you what, man. I am so patient with Nathan. And and now sometimes I might get a little frustrated, but I do it in a way that's very gentle. And don't you get impatient with me because I don't like that. Don't you be, I'm telling you, do you understand what I'm talking about? God is giving, we're being given relational commands and qualities that only work in the context of relationships. The only way to tell if you have a compassionate heart or patience is by interacting closely with other people. Now the good news is God has placed people in your life. If nothing else, you have a massive church family and God has called you to to live out your Christian life and to practice these principles with people in the church. So often we tend to do this mostly in the homes because we're closest with those people, but often we have a higher commitment to those at home than we do at church. And that's not necessarily how God's intended for it to be. He's calling us to be committed to one another. So these are, these are relational commands. I love reading World War II memoirs. It's a genre of literature that never gets old to me. And I've read of how men can be excellent marksmen on the shooting range, right? You put them in uh, northern Georgia on a training camp, and man, they can shoot, they can, they can lay there, and they can shoot targets all day. But that does not necessarily mean that they're going to be good under fire, right? It's one thing to hit a target when you're on a shooting range, and it's a totally different thing to hit a target in combat when there's mortars that are exploding around you and your throat is thick with terror and your hands are are shaking, right? One man is a marksman. The other man is a soldier. And God uses our relationships to test and to display and to develop these Christian qualities that are natural only to Christ. It's one of the primary purposes of community. It's one of the primary purposes that God has placed the people that are in this room in your life. I know there's some weird people here, right? And yes, I have a mirror, right? God has called us to love one another and to live with each other in such a way that we would demonstrate God's glory. And my goodness, does this list not already remind us how much we need grace? I mean, is anyone seriously going to be here and be like, patience, got it, check, right? Compassionate hearts, I have a perfectly compassionate heart. No, 
This text reminds us how desperately we still need Jesus. It's one thing to evaluate your holiness and your maturity based on how infrequently you get drunk. Good job. Right? That's one thing. It is another thing altogether to evaluate your life on the perfect practice of patience. On continual, constant compassion against people who hurt you. Or on mild meekness. This is part of God's standard for us as well. So let's look at these qualities uh, one at a time. Okay. Number one, I think we have five here. Number one, compassionate hearts. Put on compassionate hearts. As Christians, we are called to cultivate hearts that are wrapped up in the needs of other people. You are called to develop the habit of entangling your life in the problems of other people. Translated literally, this phrase, compassionate hearts, it it could be translated, and if you have an older version, um, it may be translated the bowels of mercy, right? Which is uh, a graphic picture. Bowels were an ancient term for, it functions very much like the heart, right? It refers to the inner part of a man, his his inner being. And it's not a biological term, it's a a psychological category, right? A spiritual category category. It's a phrase that means that God intends for us to get involved in the problems that other people have, in the needs that other people have. Not in a simple sanitary way where it's like keeping a proper distance, but being willing to be emotionally involved in the problems of others. The str- some of the struggles that you heard tonight should be a real concern for your life. So much so that if the problems get worse, your life gets worse. Because you care about the children of other people. And you care about the coworkers and the friends and the job situations of people in this church. Because you have a heart that is compassionate. God is calling for us to do that. For our lives to be affected by the circumstances of others. Right, it's really easy to do this in your family, right? When we've talked about this before. But God is calling us not only to be wrapped up in the lives of our children or spouse, but to put on this posture more with other people. To mingle your life into the problems of people around you. To make a gut-level investment. To help other people sort through their problems. To mend relationships, to face temptations, to fight sin, and to help one another suffer patiently. I've only been here for about four years, and as I look around this room, I I see so many people who have helped me with these very things. People who have helped me work through problems and fight sin and mend relationships and to suffer patiently. That's how God designs it. None of us is self-sufficient. We need one another. This is a quality that we see in God. And we see it most in the incarnation. Remember, I love uh, Luke chapter 1 verse 78 where the scriptures say, Because of the tender mercy of God. Which, by the way, is the same word for compassionate hearts, right? Because of the tender mercy of our God. The sunrise shall visit us from on high. 
Jesus came because of the tender mercy, because of the compassionate heart of God. God the Father and God the Son did not look on our problems and the plight of humanity and say, that was stupid, right? You ever do that as a parent? You watch your kid get into some situation, you're like, that was dumb, right? God doesn't do that with us. He came, was born of a virgin into a mess and was crucified, helping us. This is what God does. He did not say, I'll pray for you, but God got involved in our problems. In Matthew chapter 9, we get this beautiful picture of Jesus. Normal day for Jesus. Matthew 9, 36 says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's that same word, tender mercy, that compassionate heart. So we are to go and to be like God. Secondly, we are to put on kindness. Our clothing, our our lives are to be marked with kindness. Again, we have a word that does not naturally occur in human relationships, right? If you're inclined to, if you're one of those folks that thinks that all people are naturally kind, right? Just uh, go scroll through the comment section on Fox News, right? And see if you think that people are naturally kind anymore, right? When faced with any kind of minor dislike or provocation, kindness is not our natural response, but harshness. It's a joke, but uh, listen to this exchange between um, George Bernard Shaw and Winston Churchill. Um, George Bernard Shaw, who's a famous playwright, uh, wrote a letter to Winston Churchill and he said this, Enclosed are two tickets to the opening night of my first play. Please bring a friend, parentheses, if you have one. So Churchill replied, Dear Mr. Shaw, unfortunately I'll be unable to attend the opening night of your play due to a prior engagement. Please send me tickets for a second night, if you have one. Right? We're inclined to, they're joking, but we're inclined to, to harshness, not kindness. In Romans chapter 3, the scriptures say, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Guess what that word is? No one does kindness. No one does it. Not even one. This word kindness, here's a graphic. This is a good old Baptist illustration, right? It's a word that was often used for wine, right? Wine is that purple stuff that some people drink, Baptist, right? Uh, it, it's, it was used to describe the mellowing quality, that when, when wine would age to a certain point, the grapes would lose their harshness and would become more mellow. And this was this picture, the, the, the wine was becoming kinder, is losing its harshness, which is a helpful picture of how we are to age or to mature. Those who are truly kind are kind not only to pleasant people. You realize that's not really a thing? You're not really kind if you're just kind to people that are nice? Jesus is like, even the enemies, even wicked people do that. It's about being kind to people that are unkind to you, right? There's this picture of mellowing out what is harsh. Being kind to those who are unkind in such a way that you are mellowing I don't mean in some cheesy way, but in, in, a, in a gracious way. Have you, have you known people like this? They can, you put them in, in nasty situations and they will love and they will serve and they, dif, they diffuse kindness. 
mellowing out what is harsh, stepping into harsh situations with gentleness and grace. I was surprised to learn that that this is the same word that Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My yoke is kind. Think about it. Jesus is saying that that, that it's a kind... I'm able to take away the heaviness of the yoke. I'm able to mellow out the weight of the yoke for you. I can take it and make it lighter. Kindness is grace that pervades all of a person. And once again, who is our model here? God. One of the striking passages in all of the Gospels is Luke chapter 6, 35 for me. It says this, But love your enemies. And do good. Lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to ungrateful and evil people. God is kind to evil people. Why in the world do we think that we don't have to be kind to evil people? But she was mean to me. I know, right? Be kind. So let's go and be like God. A third quality here is humility. Humility. Put on humility. Humility in the ancient world is a word that was always negative. It was always a slam, always a criticism. No one wanted to be humble. I guess we've got this like weird like faux humility in American culture where it's like we kind of like it sometimes, but not really, right? Like we don't, we think we're supposed to because like we had Puritans as our ancestors or something. So maybe we like it, but I don't, but in the ancient world, no one wanted to be humble. That was not, it meant servitude. It was, it was pathetic, like, like literally pathetic. In many ways, humility is a distinctly Christian virtue because true humility is despised by the world. Philippians 2 gives us a striking picture of the humility of Christ where among, the Bible talks about humility all the time, but Philippians 2 shows us that it is thinking of others more than yourself. This is what Christ did, Right? Not thinking, not necessarily beating yourself up or being a doormat or thinking poorly of oneself. This is not a self-esteem thing. But instead, we see that you value other people more than you value self. Jesus took on the interest of other people and made them his own. So much so that it led to death, even death on a cross. Humility is a cross. For there Christ did not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And he humbled himself, even to death on a cross. True humility always and only can originate from the cross. It's the only way. The cross humbles every Christian. Once we recognize Friend, once, if, you're, if, you follow, if you're a follower of Christ, once you recognize what the cross says about you, and if you're a Christian and you've been baptized, you've stood in a baptism like this, and you've said, I identify with all that Jesus said about me. Like, I died with Christ because I should have died. I'm guilty of everything that took place on the cross. That's what happens when we come to Christ. And when we recognize what the cross really says about us, And how awful our sin really is before God. Do you know what happens? 
Oh man, that's a pride killer, isn't it? Pride melts because the cross exposes you. It's so fitting that those who were crucified were crucified naked, exposed. The cross takes the depths of your sinfulness and makes it public. Puts it up high for everyone to see. And if you follow Christ, you have to comprehend and you confess this out loud. You have to realize that such a gruesome death like the one Christ endured for you would only be required for one who is exceedingly sinful. That's you. And when you come to understand this, then you understand why Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. Then you understand why Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? Consequently, this will dramatically affect how you interact with other people. It reorients how you interact with God, right? Because you've already been publicly shamed. You've already admitted to everything on the cross. So it changes you. It changes, with God, it changes how you appreciate his mercy. Does it not? But it also changes how you treat other people. If you want people to think highly of you, then you're going to need to hide the cross, If you want people to think well of you, you are going to need to conceal the cross. Because it is a big, gruesome, public statement of how sinful you are. But if you identify with the cross, like willingly, and if you allow yourself to be exposed by it, suddenly you don't need to hide anymore. And suddenly you're not as concerned with what other people think about you. And you're free from it. You can be humble. Few, uh, few weeks ago, I was in Louisville for my doctoral seminars, and I had a, a seminar with, uh, with a professor there. And it's a, it's a small setting, and we got into a theological debate, imagine that, about, uh, about forgiveness. And so I very passionately believe that the Bible describes two types of forgiveness. This is kind of technical, but that, anyways, and there are some who disagreed with me, and they think there's one type of forgiveness, right? And so I was passionately arguing my case, and I was right. And they were passionately arguing their case, and they were wrong. And our professor was just listening, and he was kind of facilitating the conversation, and and he let us go for like 45 minutes, and it was, I mean, it was good, and I I was right. And, uh, (laughs) And when... When we got done, I so to so this is a man who's earned a PhD, and I pulled up his dissertation. Do you know what his dissertation was on? Two types of forgiveness. He didn't say a word. There's no scenario in this world that I would have not have been like. By the way, guys, I wrote eight a hundred and eighty pages on this. I he didn't do that. He didn't need to be, he didn't find his identity in what we as seminary guys thought of him. Totally freed from it. And I went up and thanked him and apologized. (laughs) Humility. Freed from what other people think of you. It affects your whole life. Final category here. Oop, two more. Whoa. Uh, Gentleness and meekness. These are closely related to humility. But when people think of meekness, they think of weakness, right? I think of what the famous or infamous basketball coach, Bobby Knight, used to say. He said, 
The meek may well inherit the earth, but they very rarely get rebounds. Right? And that's often what we think of when we think of meekness. But meekness is not weakness, but power under control. It's gentleness under control. It flows out of humility that, that recognizes what the cross has said about us so that we're able to willingly take on pain for the good of other people. We're willing to be taken advantage of so that someone else may not have to suffer. The meek would rather suffer injury than cause injury. The meek, as we'll see next week when we look at forgiveness, are willing to take on and absorb pain caused by the sins of other people because this person recognizes that he too is a sinner. Meekness. Jesus said this, he modeled this for us. He took on the effects of sinners, didn't he? And he said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Let's go and be like Jesus in this regard as well. A final quality, the final one we'll cover tonight is patience. One who is patient does not grow angry with others. No matter how foolish or sinful or bullheaded they are, the patient man endures difficulties. I once heard it said, and I think this is helpful, that a patient man is like wet tinder in the middle of a firestorm. He's not easily ignited. Not easy to catch on fire. Patient. The Greek word that's used here is a beautiful word picture. It's the word for long-suffering, right? Suffer for a long time. That's the picture of patience. One who will suffer for a long time in the face of insult and injury. Surely because he recognizes that God has done that very same thing for him. Parents. Whether you have children of any age, you want to know you can stop losing it with your kids. You want to know how to be more patient with your kids. You need to recognize the incredible patience that God the Father and Christ have shown towards you as a sinful creature. Romans chapter 9 verse 23 says this, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. The Bible teaches, I know this is complicated, the Bible teaches that that God has patiently been restraining his wrath. He's been hiding and limiting and holding back his power all to display his mercy, to give more mercy. And we are called to imitate him in this same thing. So we too can endure all sorts of injuries and wrongs once we understand and are amazed by God's incredible patience with us. And it struck me as I was meditating on this. If God is patient, well, think about whatever problem you're having with whoever in your life. If God is patient with that person, do you really have the right to be impatient? Uh, no, God, you don't understand. We're to imitate God in patience. That's why 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, with all men. 
And we'll pick up on this more next week as we think how this leads us to forgiveness. But tonight as we close, let's just pause in amazement as we think about this list. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. How are you doing on these qualities? Hopefully you're more aware of your sinfulness than you were when you came in. But that very sinfulness does not have to drag you down into the pits of despair or self-loathing. Instead, understanding your sinfulness more can actually serve to lift you up by magnifying how much you really need Jesus and how much he has really done to save you. Let this not only compel you to grow in holiness, but let this help you grow in how much you appreciate the magnitude of God's mercy and forgiveness towards you. Because isn't it the kindness of God that leads us to repentance? Let me close this in prayer. Father, help us to respond to the kindness, the compassion, the mercy, the meekness, and the patience that you've shown to us. And help us to go and do likewise. We ask this in your name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.